You are listening to the Canadian Bar Association National Magazine. Hello, I'm Eve Figui, the Editor-in-Chief of CBA National Magazine. The big question on a lot of people's minds in the legal sector is, when the crisis of the pandemic abates, will life and law be any different? Of course, it'll be different by some measure, but will it be really different? Will digital transformation finally become a real priority? Will the appetite for adjustment and experimentation that we're seeing forced upon the courts and law firms, law schools and regulators, will that continue beyond the shutdown? And how will we organize our legal workforce? Will that change at all? In the second episode of our series, we'll be exploring these questions, and thankfully I'm joined by two of the sharpest minds in legal innovation in Canada today, Our first guest is the co-founder and COO of a leading machine learning and legal tech company, Diligen, based in Toronto, which provides contract review for lawyers. She's Laura von Weingarten, who we're pleased to have with us. Thanks so much, Eve. Good to be here. We're also really keen to dig into the mind of our second guest. He's a tax lawyer and a legal entrepreneur and has clearly taken the long view in terms of building his own law practice using technology, relentlessly tweaking his own processes and adapting his methods. In 2018, he was the inaugural Innovator-in-Residence at the OBA, and until recently, co-hosted one of the best legal podcasts, in my view, Building New Law. He's the principal at Counter-Tax Lawyers. Please welcome Peter Aprile. Thanks for having me. Let's get to it. We're about eight weeks into it, nine weeks maybe. Tell me what you were seeing in the legal market in terms of a willingness to take risks, try new things, experiment in the legal sector versus where we are now. Perhaps, Laura, we could start with you. So I think my my experience is perhaps not representative because what I spend my time doing and what a lot of my team spend their time doing is talking to law firms all around the world, talking to clients, talking to partners who are actively adopting machine learning software, are actively changing processes are being so we perhaps don't see a, a true cross section of you know law firms legal service providers so so we already felt that there was a lot happening a lot changing that there were a lot of firms out there adopting this technology changing the way they work offering new things to their clients very interested in legal technology what we're seeing now of course is law firms out over the last few weeks having been under tremendous pressure to change their processes in terms of being able to work remotely in a very short period of time, going from perhaps all being in the office to all being remote and and needing that to function well. And so I think there's been an example for for a lot of firms out there of how quickly change can happen when there's the, the, the real need to do so. They can change radically and quickly in ways they hadn't considered before. So that's been very, very interesting to, to hear those stories from around the world about how firms have responded to the change. What about you, Peter? Have you seen anything different? Similar to Laura, actually, I feel like I live in a bubble that is counter. It's a nice warm bubble. But yeah, so in, in terms of where we were before, you know, I guess it depends how long you go back. I don't think that it's any secret that innovation has, has not been a strong suit in our core competency in our profession in the past. I think that continues. And I found your question interesting because when you say take risks and try new things, uh, which are two separate things in my mind, and I wonder whether uh, most people that are in our industry conflate those two things. Taking risks, I don't see much, if any, of that. Uh, Trying new things is something, as as Laura quite rightly points out, 
this pandemic or the impact of this pandemic uh, provides an example of what might happen when a bunch of people are forced uh, to try new things. And the remote work is such a, uh, it, it's, the, it's a good example in some sense because it's so obvious and, and it, was, it was something that we were all forced to do. But, you know, it is just the tip of the iceberg. And then the question becomes, what can happen if an industry full of uh, very smart and successful people uh, don't wait to be forced to try something new uh, and instead try something new? And my God, I can't even imagine what would happen if, if some folks actually took some risks. Do you think that they might develop an appetite to take no. a little bit more risk? <laughs> no? I had to guess. Uh, no, I, I think that when you say take more risks, that's loaded for me because I don't think that, you know, it, it really comes down to what you or others perceive as a risk. I think that there is, a, there is some confusion about what constitutes a risk and what constitutes just trying something new that doesn't have any significant risk attached to it. No, I don't, I don't know. Uh, and again, we live in a bubble, but uh, I'm not expecting widespread uh, risk-taking, responsible risk-taking or otherwise, and I'm not anticipating a whole heap of trying new things. Do you? Well, Laura, maybe I could uh, put this to you this way. Do you see a change in uh, among your clients in terms of wanting to try out new things? Has this jolted them into action in any way, judging by what you've seen? And I'm not talking just about working from home, maybe incorporating different you know, technology into, into how they service their clients. Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, Peter, I loved your distinction between uh, the difference between trying new things and risk, because I think another, another thing that is underappreciated is the risk of not trying new things. It's not just trying new things that has risks, right? But even more to your, your point, what we've seen is a lot of firms get very serious about technology lately, whether it's been because they've uh, had some firms have seen a bit of a lull in other activity, and they think this is a fantastic time to really take a closer look at uh, what technology they should be using, reassess the current technology that they may be using, get the right technology in place uh, to be successful in future. And, and, you know, the working remotely factors into that. We know, you know, our, our tech, for example, is, is built for teams to be using from lots of different offices around the world. So it works perfectly for that sort of remote work situation. And so that's become more of a focus. Peter? Yeah, no, I, I love what Laura said. I, I put my hands up when she said, are you, are you accurately appreciating what the risks are? And as Laura rightly points out, and it's, it's the risks of not acting, what's the impact of that? When I think about the conversations I've had before this through the Building New Law podcast and then during this period, and when we talk about changes and serious conversations and serious actions, like the question that immediately comes up on my mind is what makes the conversations in the last two and a half months or before that serious conversations? Like, is it the tone and feeling that accompanies those? Is it the fear that's driving those conversations? So is everybody really worried in the room? And that's why it's a serious conversation because that's less interesting to me. And what's really interesting to me is like, like the level of commitment and the actions that are being taken. And so, you know, in the recent past, it, it feels like I am part of an industry that enjoys talking about this type of thing, but we're lawyers, folks. And so the question is, where is the evidence and where is the action? Where, like, where, what is the thing that I can touch or see that makes me think that 
there is some action behind conversations that maybe uh, maybe sound serious or dire or sound like people are actually going to move. Well, I mean, yeah, but to be fair, I think there are different other, obviously people going at different speeds in the legal, in the legal industry. And, you know, I have heard people express a certain amount of frustration around, you know, trying to uh, pull people along in their firms, uh, coworkers, partners along to adopt new ways of doing things. Some have expressed to me, quite bluntly that this crisis has been a great opportunity for them to accelerate some of these changes. Accelerate. Sorry. When you say accelerate, like, I'm just going to keep pushing back. Sorry. Yeah. But, no, go um, ahead. So I'll just play the challenger um, role. So there's two things that come up when I hear, I hear the word push or pull people like pull people, uh, others, and then accelerating. And so, uh, you know, I think that that is where part of the problem lies and that idea that, any of us have the ability to push or pull others. And it is, you know, what this pandemic provides space for is people to step forward on their own accord as opposed to being pulled by others. And I think that's how real, uh, I think that's how real change happens and how, and how, adop and how adoption happens, right? It is, it is the willing acting with, um, with less regard and less energy focused on pulling or pushing others and instead stepping forward themselves. And, and one factor that I think is gonna be a, a big driver of, of adopting you know, new technologies of change in general is law firms looking at their clients, seeing more cost sensitivity, which has been a, you know, it's been a theme for, for a while where we've, we've talked about uh, cost sensitivity in, in law firm clients' uh, competition from you know, other legal service providers, the big four and, uh, and others who have a model centered around not the billable hour around the, um, perhaps, you know, during processes as effectively as possible, as repeatedly as possible. So that cost sensitivity was always there, but I think has been enhanced by the current climate. And I think there's firms who are looking at that, seeing the sensitivity from their clients and thinking, are we prepared to change the way we serve our clients more than we were previously? My hypothesis is that people need to be intrinsically motivated to change. Uh, and I don't see, I am skeptical that an external factor, like increasing pressure from clients to reduce fees, if that's a thing, uh, I am skeptical that would lead to significant change or the change that, uh, that some in this industry uh, thinks it calls, think it calls out for. One of the things, uh, Eve, is when you say like it's a conservative industry that, you know, I interpret that as you saying the people that make up this industry are conservative. And so I, it's interesting because when everybody gets, when we, when we paint everybody with that brush, which I think we do often in this industry, I think it takes away the responsibility to each of the individuals to actually take steps towards that change. There is nothing that stops uh, or there's very little in reality, I think, that stops most people from conducting experiments within their law firms and, or, or reaching out to providers directly to explore what technology products or other things might, uh, how that might benefit them and their practices. And the only thing that stops people from doing that is themselves. So you don't see any impediments to, uh, to undertaking these kinds of initiatives uh, among people uh, you don't see other impediments in the industry, whether it's regulatory, organizational structure. 
what have you. I think that I, I see I see impediments in our industry. Um, now, the degree that those things are actually impediments is something I think, you know, I, I think the idea that these things are blocking us is overemphasized in most cases and is an inconvenient truth. If uh, individuals in this industry took action and started to change and started to push, regulators would change. Uh, you know, the Law Society of Ontario, when it talked about ABS and things like that, said in their report, and frankly, to me, it's somewhat persuasive that the uh, regulations aren't the impediment to change that some make them out to be. I, I hope that there's changes that happen. I hope that there's more opening up and things like that. But I don't see anybody backing down on the basis that um, uh, what the regulations say or don't say. That, that, that's not the bigger problem. It's, it's, again, it's too easy. It's too easy to blame them. So what makes it so difficult? Uh, actually, Laura, I mean, tech has made a number of improvements, uh, obviously. I, I think it's fair to say that it hasn't completely tr transformed the legal industry yet. From your vantage point, uh, or, or has it? Am I, am I wrong to state it that way? What, what's your take on that? I think we've seen new technologies change what is possible in certain domains, so for certain types of work. So as new technologies have become uh, very good at doing certain types of work, like contract analysis, five years, 10 years ago, you were only going to be doing that, that kind of work manually. If you're going to review a thousand or 10,000 contracts, it, it was going to take you a fair amount of time. What is possible there is fundamentally different now. For, for, so for legal tech to succeed in your view, uh, you know, what do you think are the key ingredients? For legal tech to su succeed, I think that you need to solve a problem that exists uh, first. So if, if you're creating something that does something so much better, faster, cheaper, whatever the, the case may be, than what existed before, that's, that's the foundation. And then you need the, the willingness to do it that way, which is, which is a whole nother thing, uh, which we could, we could perhaps have a, a larger discussion, discussion around, the willingness to, to change what, the way it was done before. And, and that doesn't need to be overnight. I think that's, a, that's a, it's, not, it's not a black and white thing, right? It's not necessarily going from uh, doing it the old way to doing it the new way. Uh, there's ways, uh, there's gradations of change that people can can approach and, and adopt slowly over time. With the change that we've seen now with the pandemic, I think that's accelerated that timeline for certain types of change, uh, where there isn't the luxury to to change slowly. In some cases, in order to remain competitive, you have to change quickly. You have to be willing to be a lot more uh, flexible and adaptive. I think that's 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 going to be a factor. Peter, what you built your own technological platform? I'm wondering, did you did you look around to see if there was something out there that could service you? We've we've built things that are ours, and and we've built on top of other platforms as well. So there's kind of two kind of streams happening in the law firm right now. If you talk about the thing that we built, which is a piece of software that we call Countermeasure, like how did we come to build it? We tried other products on the market; they didn't fit what we wanted to do, uh, and so. We're a ridiculous group of optimists uh, and probably just, just, just the right amount of naive. And, and we said, okay, well, we wanted to do this. It can't do this. Well, let's build something 
that can do this. And then, and then you start getting greedy and you're saying, well, it doesn't do this either. Let's start to do that. And then, you know, there's cursing and, and wasted effort and money. And then eventually you start to build something that, that, uh, that you believe is quite valuable and the people that you work with believe is quite valuable too. So it's, it's quite a, you know, I would imagine it's no different than how Laura builds her products, right? And this, Peter, we talked about technology, but you, you say that this comes primarily from purpose. This is primarily driven from purpose, from your that, purpose. I think that's where, well, I don't think. I know that's where it comes from for counter. You know, as I said before, I think that this is, for us, this is about doing great legal work, not for something else. Us doing great legal work or our desire to do great legal work doesn't serve some higher purpose. This is it. And uh, the question is, how do we get there? And everything feeds from that. So I've talked before about, uh, Laura mentioned earlier, kind of hourly rate versus flat fees, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a really easy uh, example to talk about in the sense that the question becomes, how does billing on an hourly rate basis uh, support me doing my best legal work? Or how does a flat fee model support that, period? How does... Uh, adopting technology support me doing great legal work and how does it take away from that period it's not about uh, we at least for us uh, it isn't so much about what clients want or what clients are asking for it's about us doing our best work which naturally if we're pursuing that will lead to all these uh, which hopefully will lead to all these benefits for everybody that we touch and interact with the people that we work with the people that we serve as clients it, it just runs through everything you do or at least everything we do. Even the idea of like best legal work is, is almost too broad in some senses. It's, it's uh, how can we conduct our best analysis for us as, as litigators? How can we conduct our best analysis? And how do we, how do we increase the uh, efficacy of our advocacy? Like it's that, right? And so it, it, when we talk about, so there's a portion, uh, there's a portion of our practice uh, that we've, uh, built automation around right and the question is so why do you build automation like what what is what purpose does that serve and so the question so it could be that that's a margin thing right there could be a business purpose that surrounds that but that to to me at least that's less much less attractive if if attractive at all to how can i create space for more people to do superior analysis and be more effective advocates that's the thing and the rest follows i think there, there is something else though, which is, you know, it's one thing for, I think, a firm uh, to develop um, a set of values, a culture that turns around uh, performing the best legal work possible. But there are other uh, players out there. There's a whole court system. There are still regulators. Uh, there's a, a whole uh, manner in which that the industry is run. I mean, you know, when we talk to people who are access to justice advocates and we ask them, how do we fix this problem? They will always answer, it is a multifaceted and highly complex issue. So how do we uh, attack that? How do we sort of improve and fix our justice system without falling into this, you know, throwing up our arms in the air and saying, well, it's a multifaceted problem and, you know, no one person can really fix it. How do we, how do we address that? That's, that's like the tragedy of the commons, right? That, that is, 
you know, that is, how do we fix it? We have people like Laura in our industry stepping left or right or, or wherever and saying, I'm going to take one step to solve this piece. And, and I don't know if it's the right piece. And I don't know if this, the, if this is the kind of silver bullet. And it probably isn't. But of course, everything is interconnected and it's a multifaceted problem. The solution, when you boil it down, into my way of thinking, is quite simple. It's all of us taking one step forward, not knowing where we're going. And so, again, that brings me back to purpose. As long as we're all stepping towards the same purpose, we will solve it. But we can't plan it out and architect it and map it out in advance. And when you talked earlier about the people in our industry and the mindset that underlies our industry, it's a conservative mindset because of the nature of the education and the types of people that generally go into our industry. But it is a creative, smart group of people with maybe a, a better analysis of what the real risks are in stepping forward as opposed to the perceived risks or the risks that we use as convenient, uh, I, I think this industry could step forward. I think the people in this industry could step forward. Okay, so give me your best guess on what happens to the legal market after all this ends or after we get to the next phase of emerging from this pandemic when presumably you know, some people will be returning to work uh, business will resume to a semblance of normal. What do you expect, Laura, will have changed and will be part of the new normal, so to speak? It's a, it's a very interesting question. I think we shouldn't underestimate the example um, of, of quick change that we've seen with everyone working, you know, suddenly going remote and needing to uh, adapt to that. Ha having an example of quick changes is a powerful impetus for further change. Uh, so I think that example will sort of subtly shift the mindsets uh, of people who've undergone that change uh, in the direction of being willing to, uh, to try to change other things. I think that we, we are likely to see greater client cost sensitivity and with that law firms willing to look at different ways of doing things. I think that's a powerful driver. I think firms that are looking at the future and thinking, how can we position ourselves? How can we be, how can we change what we're doing to ensure that we can continue to do our best work for our clients well into the future? Firms that are the most flexible, the most willing to change, uh, have the best opportunity to thrive, I think, over the next few years. I, I do think that we will see an acceleration of the adoption of certain types of technology. I, I think that that is what we're uh, we're seeing already, we're, you know, we, we've had a, a spike in, in requests for new trials over the last two months, a spike in other types of activity, like, as you'd expect, force majeure review for uh, uh, you know, people reviewing their contracts uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, how, how has your business changed? You know. So what we've seen is some, uh, some areas are a little quieter. M&A activity is down in, in most places right now, but we've seen a big spike in other types of activity like, like companies reviewing their contracts for force majeure. So that's, that's kept us very busy over the last little while. But we've continued to see a lot of, particularly after the initial sort of week or two when everyone was just trying to adapt to, uh, to how much life was changing uh, in a short space of time, we've seen renewed focus from firms over let's let's really focus on our technology let's make sure we've got the right thing in place so i think that uh i have a lot of optimism around uh tech adoption over the next few years 
Peter, do you think it's going to be any different? Will will key actors in the legal sector become a little bit more adventurous? Uh, are we going to go back to what it once was? How do you see it? I don't know. Can I ask Laura a question? Do you think that the length of the the pandemic, do you think the longer that this goes on, uh, increases the likelihood of tech adoption? Like, does the like you know does the does the length in which we're all working remotely continue to emphasize the need for quote unquote need for this adoption you know because it's interesting because if we just go back to normal next month th this this doesn't sit with people in the same way like they don't sit with it in the same way that it, if it goes on six months or if there's a secondary spike or something like that is is that do you see that yeah absolutely it's a great point i was i was thinking about that earlier actually that if we all went back now to you know how it was before there's a much better chance that everything the way people were thinking and doing things would revert to to how it had been previously whereas the longer we're in this new phase uh, where things are different the more chance there is that the, a new normal is established which might include different types of uh doing different ways of doing things uh, than what we've seen previously. So I think absolutely length of, length of the disruption plays into it. And of course, if the other part is, if, if firms are in a position where they, they're needing to be more competitive, the firms that, that thrive are the ones that are willing to adapt the most. So I think that, uh, Eve, I think one of, the, one of the points you had was, is, is this gonna push us in the direction of, of a more conservative industry or a more open industry? And I think by virtue of the fact that the firms that, you know, come through this and, and thrive on the other side are the ones that are willing to adapt the most. I, I would say that, I would guess, uh, more open. I really like what Laura said about that kind of evolution um, and that's sticking with me right now. But when I look at myself and, and I just think how different, again, it depends on what the timeline we're talking is, like how far out are we looking? And I look at myself and I think how different am I going to be for this experience four years from now? I don't know. I'm. I'm. It, it's hard for me to say. It's hard for me to predict that I, that the probability is high that I'm going to be significantly different. Like I think that, and I think that I'm somebody that that is really comfortable with change generally and really comfortable with that. So, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just in a different position than this. I, I really like Laura's argument or, or explanation or thought makes me feel good about this. So, so that, um, I, I was pessimistic, more pessimistic before I heard her than that. It's hard to measure how probably we'll all change through this. But at the same time, I think we got to bear in mind that, you know, there's a, there's a, a clientele out there, you know, users of our legal system, the, you know, the client, the end client in a way, you know, and how much are they going to change? And is that going to impact at all and have, place any pressure on the legal sector to really sort of get its act together in a way? Because we've been talking for years now how maybe up to 80% by some, by, by, you know, by some estimates, 80% of uh, legal needs go unmet. That sounds to me like a pretty unsustainable situation is that are people going to really start reacting to that finally? Because it's not just about people in that case who are providers of legal services. It's the people who are receiving those services. And so what role will they play in uh, exercising pressure on this front? The question I ask myself when I hear your question is, do these people have a voice now? It's one thing for people who can afford legal services now 
and can afford them a little less tomorrow and have their ability to put pressure uh, on the system or to talk to lawyers or, you know, that's, that's one group of the public. But the group of the public that you're talking about, it's a really sad, it feels like, I don't know if this is true, but it feels like a sad reality that their ability to, to influence is, is lesser. Am I, am I optimistic that our government will focus on this issue and do anything about it? Sorry, no. What is coming out, actually, what's interesting, the only kind of signal that I see that might relate to what you're talking about, if we were really stretching for some optimism, uh, is the idea is it seems like the government is um, requiring, like for an example, environmental reporting uh, now for corporations in which, uh, or companies in which they're providing uh, subsidies or funding, right? So there is something, like there's, there's, there is a possibility around kind of what you're, uh, what you're thinking about, but you know, do I think we get from the environment to access, do I think our government gets from the environment to access to justice in anything that has an eight teeth? Uh, no, I wouldn't predict that, that the probability is, is high with that. Getting that at another way though, just kind of thinking out loud, what is this going to do to uh, the job market in our industry? Uh, and is that the real thing that is going to uh, increase uh, the number of people in our industry, the number of lawyers or paralegals in our industry who are willing uh, and are motivated either through their own self-interest or through some form of altruism to provide access to justice services. That to me has a greater uh, likelihood of having an impact and something that I hope occurs. The law society in terms of that, the alternative business structure, the, the law society seems to be paving the way for, for that type of thing, there's been kind of conversations about that. It seems to be more open to that, uh, to that type of uh, business structure and framework. And frankly, in, if you have a group of people who cannot find different, you know, the traditional positions that are out there because they just don't exist right now in the current market, uh, maybe that provides an opportunity for them to gain some practical experience and maybe partnering with the Law Society will see something emerge that will lead to greater access to justice, we can only hope. One thing I wonder is whether law firms will continue to have the in-person presence that they have up till now, whether they'll be maintaining their expensive real estate. I've heard several say that they're not intending to have as much real estate going forward, that they, they're considering giving up some of their space uh, you know, going forward. And then you've got a different type of organization that's not as sort of geographically bound. And I wonder how that will change the way law gets done. I'm not sure I have the answer. Uh, Peter, do you, do you have thoughts on this? What came up for me when with the question and then here, Laura's response, a couple of things, including, man, I have to hang around with Laura more. The, the thought is like, it's completely uh, mutual, Peter. We've got to do uh, this now. Like the, so what comes up, right? Like when I think about like what's actually happening with us, like what are we seeing? Uh, I know this, the pandemic has focused our firm in a way, like we're a pretty focused group, like we are, we have laser sharp focus right now on what we want to do, why we want to do it, how it's interconnected and what every, and what to shed. And so we were already on that, I think, path and learning that, like figuring that out for ourselves, but this has accelerated that. Now, when you talk about how this changes careers and industries and things like that, it's also, it's also really focused us on the people that we want to hire and who we don't want to hire. Like our hiring criteria evolved. So at one point it was, hire the smartest people. Okay, great. Uh, then it became 
hire the smartest people that were comfortable in using technology and wanted to use that as part of their practice. Okay. Now it's hire the smartest people who are comfortable using a technology practice and want to analyze cases in the way that we analyze cases and want to advocate, want to develop advocacy skills in the same way that we want to develop advocacy skills. Like, so that it just like the number of people that are going to shoot at the other end of that funnel uh, is even narrower and more targeted than they, than it ever has been before. The idea of how remote work changes teams and things like that is something that, that we think about a lot. So my wife's a designer. So I kind of, hear about what's happening in office space design and what the impact of, of this is in, in studies that are now coming out um, in terms of how remote work is impacting how this stage remote work is impacting people and what what people anticipate and what's actually happening what's interesting is and again our experience through this pandemic is th there's two frames of, of thought i used to think it's important to have everybody on premise I used to think that it was super important for culture, super important for mentorship, critical. But I was always pulled because I always heard people talk about we're moving to a remote workforce and, and the flexibility and agility of that. And so I always questioned probably too much on one side of this fence, but that doesn't feel right either. And uh, interestingly, I think it was Herman Miller put out a report that was released today that talked about uh, millennials specifically. And the notion that they are most uncomfortable, most disrupted by this new quote unquote remote work world or phase. And the reason for that, which is fascinating and something that shows up in our practice, is they value connection in, a, in, in, in such a great and deep way that you might not anticipate. Also, their houses are different, right? So they're working in different environments, smaller environments in some cases, more, you know, commotion going on. So you're working in a less than ideal environment when you're working remotely for some of these folks. You don't have the connection, which also means I, you know, I have a, I have a hypothesis that mentorship and learning could be doing a lot better in our law firms and in this industry generally. So now you've just removed them from those unanticipated collisions and those unanticipated learning moments that I think are, I'm going to suspect we all find so important to our career and kind of made me uh, the lawyer who I am. I used to say that when I was an articling student, I used to, don't tell anybody, but I felt like I learned more smoking outside with my principal at the time than I did inside the office. So like, it's going to be really, I, I don't know which way it's going to go. And, and I would imagine it's a bit of both, but I don't think either end of the spectrum is the answer. And I think, again, when we talk about what the risks are and identifying those risks, right? Like the firm that takes, that that makes the choice to shed office space or change it like what are you giving up and can you quantify that you can the question is are you going to have the insight and the are you going to have the attempt to quantify what is the real impact because again going back to business cases and all that if the only impact you're looking for is a financial one then you can quantify that quite easily but you've just lost like you you just haven't quantified all the other uh, second and third order consequences that are, result, that are going to uh, be a result of your decision. A friend of mine in, uh, who's a partner in a firm uh, here in Montreal, he told me very recently that he felt that uh, those, in his, uh, th those among his lawyers who were most keen on getting back to the office were actually the young associates. So that comes and somewhat confirms your theory. So, but the, so that's interesting. So the question becomes, but I, I'm going to assume that they hold a lot less power, if any, 
uh, in their law firms right now. And so the the people that probably hold power in the in the in the law firm that you're describing are an older set who who probably don't value receiving mentorship and learning in the way that they once did in their career. And by the way, they can work in uh, different environments. Like the question is, like when we talk about the interconnectedness of things, and I talk about purpose, and I've been talking about organizational structure and culture in the past. Like the question is, who's who has the power to make those decisions? Who's going to make that decision? And what are they giving up for the young associates? And do they have a voice and a perspective in that? And again, now that goes into law firm ownership and how profits are distributed and all that other good stuff, right? So. Like, again, the question is like, who's at the table making these decisions and who's listening and acting based on a collective intelligence as opposed to the few? Laura, any thoughts on that? Uh, you were talking about, you know, remote working and, and how this is probably going to become part of our reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what are the pitfalls? Do you see pitfalls ahead? One thing Peter was saying that I really identified with was Previously, you, you're looking for the smartest people, but your preferences that people are be, be able to work with you in person. And we've gone through the exact same process where it was always, we're looking for the best people. We, we'd prefer if they can work with us in our downtown Toronto office. And now that with everyone being remote, that matters a lot less. And so essentially the, the candidate pool that we're, we're looking at is, is much bigger. And I'm trying to think about how that would impact the young lawyers that are coming out of uh, law school now—it's it's a very interesting moment. So, even are you, before, are, are you, are you uh, Laura? Do you think you're going to have to uh, rethink how you attract talent to your uh, to your organization? I'm not sure if it's, it's so much about attracting talent as about thinking more about having a, a much more distributed workforce, which we already do have uh, people who are sort of spread over three continents. And, uh, you know, we've, we've always had a, we've always had, had people who have been remote and we're very comfortable working remotely. Uh, but now with everyone remote, uh, it opens up certain, certain possibilities. You know, we, we're, we're not only looking to hire people who are in downtown Toronto. We're looking, uh, we're looking much more broadly. The, just what came up for me when you were talking was uh, one of our experiences recently, again, I didn't anticipate is, again, like having people distributed across the globe and the benefits of that. But then it, it becomes like, so what roles are distributed becomes another key consideration, right? So it's the smartest mind for what can be distributed. And again, we talked earlier about kind of defining that a little bit more narrowly, what the smartest mind means for that specific role. So, you know, it, we, we've started, and it sounds like Laura's as well, starting to explore, okay, so what is essential in and what can be distributed, you know, far and wide? What has no, what role and skill set doesn't have a geographical uh, boundary? Also, one of the other things that came up when uh, Laura was talking, something I didn't anticipate Again, and when we talk about the spectrums of remote or in office, one of the things that's shown up for us is people learning and training have accelerated depending on what stage they're at in their, in, in their career with us or, or, or relationship with us, has accelerated after being in the office for us a period of time and then having this rug pulled under them. So, Because now what's happened is they're remote. And so when I talked about those, um, those collisions uh, earlier, those collisions for learning, there is a huge benefit to them up until a point like everything else. Uh, and so 
in another, what we've seen in, in, in one case specifically right now is actually what we learned is that was a crutch. And once we remove that, that once this rug has been pulled under them and they've been forced remotely, their growth has taken off. And so, you know, when there isn't somebody to ask that question to, when, when, when you just don't have that lifeline, what is the growth that's possible when not having it? And, and I, it's interesting, I thought back to myself, my, my principal died in my third year of practice and I remember leaving my office, walking out the door of my, my office and looking down the hallway and I could see his door uh, closed at the end of the hallway because he had passed and he was no longer there. And I, I remember thinking to myself, there's nobody on the other side of that door. Uh, and so it's just you. And, and you know what happens? You figure it out. And uh, what's interesting in, in especially people that were hired just before this, this happened is I, I love the development and uptick that this kind of, I don't know, forced independence, let's call it, has created. And now again, I, what I'm anticipating, what I expect to happen is there's going to be you know, peaks and valleys, you know, some in office and some out of office. But when we think of our onboarding process and our teaching process, now we're starting to play with the notion of even if we have the opportunity to have somebody in the office all day, every day, full time, maybe we want to design a system that doesn't do that. Like maybe we start to design a system with intention that has the best of one system and the best of another. And that yeah. starts getting fun. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty, that's, that's a tall order right there. Because, <laughs> you, I mean, you know, as you said, you know, there, there are circumstances where people uh, just perform better, probably uh, on site. Some might perform better at different times uh, away at home. So, so can I ask a question? When you say yeah. that's a tall order, right? Because this goes back to kind of, I think, the central point in this in terms of taking risks and trying new things. What's the tall order? Well, you're, you're talking about designing a system of how an office is structured, how a, workplace, how a workplace is structured, uh, mixed up with mentorship, uh, guidance. But we're doing that. We are doing that now, right? We're just not doing it with intention. And arguably, we're doing it unthinkingly, right? And, and so the question is, like, what harm, when we talk about risks, what harm could possibly befall? And, and how big is that harm? If we say, you know what, for the first three months, you work in the office one week and you work out of the office the next week. And then you iterate on that, right? Like, that's the point is that the, the, the success or failure, you've already succeeded by trying. In the worst case scenario, like what would be the worst case scenario? It takes an extra week of in-office work to get the person, for them to get themselves, excuse me, where they need to get to. Maybe, maybe Laura can help us out with that because I think she has some experience with bringing people on in a, in a very distributed manner. I remember reading years ago, Skills for the Future. It must be at least five or seven years ago. And, and I think one of the top ones was the ability to, to effectively stay connected as a remote team. And that was seen as one of the, the top sort of skills for the future. And I can see very much now how essential that is. And, and I think we're, we're all getting a crash course in, in that. Uh, those organizations who were not set up to do that are, uh, are, are learning it now. And those who, who already had, uh, are, you know, are, are adding to their, their, their skill level. And it, it does give you a lot more flexibility in terms, of, in terms of hiring, in terms of being able to bring on very smart people who might not be in your uh, direct vicinity. And I, th I think that's, that's good for everyone. That's good for, for those people who might want to be working with you and good for organizations that are able to, to bring on uh, really talented people. So uh, it, 
it's a positive thing for sure. I think one of the one of the things we might be learning from this conversation is in fact how important uh, hiring the right talent is going to be. Uh, if we want to affect any change, if we do want to uh, implement meaningful changes in the legal sector, one of the questions I asked uh, Kyla Sandwith of uh, Denovo Inc. last week was, if there's one thing you would change, what would it be? And, and, and she said, you know, it's a tough question, but really it's got to happen in the law schools. It's how we form uh, the law grads uh, because you know, that's where it really has to change because they're the ones who are going to be uh, leading all these initiatives in the coming years. Let me take that and, and ask you, uh, you know, this question, how, what would you do to, uh, what would you change about, you know, the, the, the education system in law to form, uh, form future legal practitioners, uh, professionals of, of all types in the industry? Great question. One component I think that is important is the ability to be able to use legal technology well, to use it knowledgeably, to know what's out there and to be able to use it well, which I think is absolutely just, just one of the skills you, you need to do to do the legal work of the future. So I, the tech literacy is important. But beyond that, I think what remains important is the ability to think creatively, to be able to come up with new ways, new solutions of uh, new ways of doing things uh, that don't necessarily rely on the old structure to be able to uh, think through, this is the outcome we want and how are there other ways we could get there if we, if we weren't looking at the way it's done now. I think that that remains the core of what's important and I'm not sure exactly how we get there or even to the extent to which we're getting there now. But I think that's got to be that's got to be central. So look to precedent, but not too much. Peter, what would you uh, ask of our legal educators? Change admissions. How so? Um, the like, what is the like when we talk about it, it's it's again it's it's so uh, it's almost amusing because it see, it feels like in some senses the solution to the problem is always the same. It is. To me, when I think about it, it's, again, what Laura said and what I mentioned earlier and what you said is the talent that you hire is the most important thing, right? That's nothing groundbreaking we've uncovered here. Great. Maybe we're defining it better and all that other good stuff. So why is that any different for law schools? The talent that they hire, quote unquote, the students that, it, that they admit is going to produce, is going, is, is, it seems to me to produce the greatest likelihood of change in the industry. And, and when we talk about you know, forming them when they're in, like if we are putting in the same input into the system, is it, how much difference is it going to make if you try to form them differently once it's in there? Um, you know, the idea that I wonder the level of collective intelligence in our industry and I, like I do. And because, you know, if you put a bunch of people into a system that all think the same way, that isn't collective intelligence. That's a lot of people that think the same way. But if you change the people that you put in the industry and make them think differently, then you have the opportunity for collective intelligence. And so I don't know how, but all I know is I am skeptical about the criteria that they use to admit most students into law school right now. And until that changes, 
Well, I'm going to give you the last word, Peter, on that one. Laura von Weingarten uh, of Diligent, Peter Aprile, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast today. Uh, I appreciate you both sharing your views, taking the time to speak with us. I've been talking with Laura von Weingarten and Peter Aprile. Thanks and join us for the next episode. Thank you. Thanks so much. views about what changes need to happen in our justice system and in the legal profession. Where do you think the key players need to focus their energies and how do you suggest we encourage more experimentation in the legal sector? Let us know on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on Facebook. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Wherever you listen to the podcasts, subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, listen to our Juriste Branché podcasts. Mm-hmm.